So twice the week before Christmas. We're not going to be here next week, so everyone get your fill today. No rational security next week. No rational security. Holiday hiatus. <laughs> exactly. All your security will be irrational next week. <laughs> For and, the week of and Christmas. maybe we'll start a little early. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's everyone? Do you guys have fun plans? Well, uh, a friend is making me a special 2017 snow globe for the baby cannons to blow up. A snow globe? Yeah. Because when, whenever... Why I, do you hate Christmas? No, so whenever I do... <laughs> Why like, do you hate snow globes? No, it's whenever I do uh, a uh, a Twitter, you know, take requests for what yeah. to blow up for baby cannon, uh, people always want a snow globe. Really? Um, yeah. And... and We've looked and looked for the appropriate snow globe, but we we feel that the appropriate one would be one that represents the year 2017 wow. somehow. And so uh, we haven't been able to find the appropriate one. So um, my friend Autumn wants to make one. And so she's hard at work making a 2017 snow globe. And the baby cannons are quivering with excitement. Wow. So I, you know... I'm okay with this, but the metaphor of a big explosion at the end of the year <laughs> is worrisome to me, given it's everything going out with a bang. You yeah. may be tempting fate, Ben. <laughs> I'm thinking North Korea. No, no, no. Bob Mueller gets fired on Christmas Eve. No, the no, Christmas no, Eve no. massacre. It's just that 2017 sucks, and we should blow it up. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Beam Me Up Santa edition. I'm Shane Harris, Christmas reporter. It is my favorite time of year, you guys. It is. It's a nice time of year. I love Christmas. I love the holidays. I love the season. I love an empty Washington, D.C. Yeah. Actually, it's my my favorite time to stay in town is when everyone else is gone. Yeah, (laughs) it's good. We have this tradition of going around walking on Christmas night and seeing all the lights, and the city is just dead on Christmas night. It's kind of eerie, but it's it's like everyone's in their house and it's all warm and the lights are on, but there's really no one on the streets. I'm going to be so sad when Christmas is over because using Santa as a disciplinary threat is going to go away and like <laughs> I have been heavily relying. <laughs> all right, so wait, give us an example. Like I uh if you don't get in your bed, I pull out the phone and I'm like, "Oh, I got to text Santa because you know you are honor oh, bound wow. to be f- it's full disclosure between parents and Santa guys. It's not my choice and if you put me in a difficult position, it's like I I I have to tell the truth. So Santa is your oversight authority, basically? About good and bad behavior. And like, look, I'm sorry. You're putting me in an incredibly bad position right now. Okay, so here's the question, Susan. How many times have you played this card? Hundreds. Honestly. um, I don't know how I'm going to parent without it. Um, And it works every time. So like, when did you start? Like in August? (laughs) Like like right after Thanksgiving. Like he needed the visuals of Santa being around. Um, Originally, the advent calendar candy was like a strong enough um, incentive slash deterrent. But uh, he has outgrown that. So we needed a uh, heavier. You had to escalate. (laughs) (laughs) It's the turn the screw approach to coercive diplomacy in in season 10. And that is the true meaning of Christmas. So like (laughs) growing up Jewish, this is like all like. Like new to me. I, yeah, you know. I don't know how you guys ever got your kids to do anything because the gifts come directly from the parents. <laughs> <laughs> Much more direct. Forget this outside force. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of outside forces, uh, this week on the podcast. Oh, you were just waiting. Oh my to say god, that. I'm so excited for this week. 
Robert Mueller gets hold of emails from the presidential transition. The Pentagon has been researching sightings of UFOs. As it should. I'm going to repeat Shane that. And Tammy the are Pentagon so excited, has been researching sightings of UFOs. And, We're and the Daily Podcast had an incredible like account of that story. It was amazing. Which you really need to listen We're to. We're going to get to this. Yeah. Uh, and a U.S. citizen is being held as an enemy combatant in Iraq. Uh, plus an object lesson. It's a special object lesson. We're going to talk about the stories and moments that we think didn't get enough attention in 2017 because Russia. <laughs> so speaking of Russia. Um, so Robert Mueller, the special counsel, has apparently gotten hold of a huge tranche of emails that were used by members of the Trump transition on a GSA server. So these are PTT.gov, presidential transition team.gov emails. Uh, uh, pretty immediately, the Trump lawyers threw a fit about this for all kinds of reasons, saying um, that there were attorney-client privilege violations. That were Bullshit! <laughs> <laughs> well, tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not even a lawyer, and I know that. <laughs> Pitch to you first on this one. So you guys, I'm in the room, and I am an attorney, so this is all privileged conversation. <laughs> oh, thank God. I like this. I like this. Um, so so the, 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 the legal argument, it's multifaceted, but essentially is that um, you know, Mueller has overreached here. He had no real authority to go to the transition and obtain these emails. This prompted a rare response from the uh, special counsel's office, in which they said rather curtly, um, whenever we get information like this, we do it with pursuant to legal authority or criminal proce- procedure. Um, let's take the legal element of this, and then let's talk about the politics and the sort of strategy of the Mueller investigation. And uh, you know, the opportunity that this gives Trump to push back on it. So, Susan, there's been some really good writing on Lawfare, actually, this week about this. I mean, what is, does the argument hold water that um, Bob Mueller did not have any authority to get these emails and that they're covered by privacy or presidential communications privilege or attorney-client privilege? Yeah, so once again, we're in a position where the Trump team or some element of the Trump team, and keep in mind, you know, the Trump transition is one entity, the Trump White House is one entity, the Trump organization, the campaign is something different. So we're talking about the sort of the Trump transition here. They're offering sort of a half-baked legal argument and and, and not a particularly well-articulated legal argument. And so that makes it a little bit difficult to sort of say this is unequivocally wrong and sort of point to the precise areas where it's wrong because it's sort of like, well, you're saying this thing, it's really hard to sort of track the logic. Um, Sort of based on the letter which was sent to Congress, you know, their essential argument is is that even though they were using government devices, um, that this was, it was covered by an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding uh, between GSA and the Trump transition, there was some kind of representation that these uh, uh, you know, documents or anything, any content in information that was exchanged using these devices was going to be treated as private. Um, now, And the transition we should say is a private organization. All transition teams exactly. are. Exactly. It's, it's, it's essentially a non-profit organization that is partially funded by, uh, by the government. Um, so a little bit of sort of a nebulous thing. It appears that the MOU actually expressly states that there is no expectation of privacy, that they will uh, cooperate with law enforcement. It sort of the letter intimates that there was some kind of different oral representation about whether or not these would be private. 
I think really sort of the tell here that this is not a serious legal argument is that these complaints were directed at Congress. They actually, the letter is actually not really making, I mean, they, they use terms like unlawful, but it's actually not challenging the fact that Mueller obtained these emails. It's saying, hey, Mueller did this thing. We're really unhappy about it. And we think Congress should enact future law and policy to protect future presidential transitions. So it appears that what happened is Mueller's team requested documents from the Trump transition. They produced several hundred documents in response, sort of several hundred responsive emails. In the course of interviewing witnesses, the witnesses realized that somehow Mueller's team had not just the emails that they had produced, but all of the emails, right? So that sort of tipped them off to, hey, wait a minute, they're actually working off a complaint. And there's some delta, perhaps, it seems, maybe between those two. Some significant <laughs> exactly. delta. Exactly. And a significant delta about whether or not the team has actually responded fully and completely to it. To subpoena. So it appears that that was sort of the episode that, that spooked or irritated uh, uh, the Trump for America team. And now they're making this sort of policy argument to Congress that really it was immediately leaked to Fox News. Um, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that this is kind of a PR stunt talking right. point. Now, embedded in that, there are potentially interesting Fourth Amendment questions. Well, a private public entity and and how does this interact? And, and Orrin Kerr has um, written on Lawfare sort of saying, yeah, it looks like there's nothing there, but let's not so fast and let's actually sort of as a fun academic exercise think about think through these issues. But no, from what I can see, there is no serious legal argument here. I don't even see the Trump for America team really claiming that there's a serious legal argument here. Yeah, so I think uh, I think that's all very likely correct. Uh, if you have a serious legal argument that a prosecutor is behaving improperly or that a government agency is behaving improperly in complying with a prosecutor's subpoena or production request, you generally take it to the supervising court and the chief judge of of the the relevant court, which would be the district, uh, uh, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, you generally don't go to a committee without jurisdiction over the uh, a committee of Congress that doesn't have jurisdiction over the relevant investigation. Um, and I think the fact that they did it in that fashion suggests that they're probably the audience is is something other than uh, you know the people really concerned about the legalities uh, or people in a position to do something about whatever uh, illegality there may have been. Uh, I will say that when you use a government computer or device, you generally don't do it with the assumption that there are deep privilege issues from a criminal investigator or that there are big Fourth Amendment concerns about that being turned over. Uh, you're not the owner of the material. You generally don't have an expectation of privacy in that regard. Uh, and, uh, you know, certain FBI agents uh, found that out the hard way recently. Uh, and I'm not sure why the Trump transition is especially differently situated from that. I think that's actually that that last point about what happened to the FBI agents um, on the Mueller team whose texts were exposed 
is is worth focusing on not for the specific contrast but for the for the choice of Trump's lawyers and allies to make an issue of this at the same time that they are clearly um uh embracing exposure of other people's information that you know might be exposed not pursuant to appropriate process um and also that they're claiming privacy rights on information that, you know, that was part of the transition, just as they've insisted on a right to shroud in secrecy the president's tax returns, his business dealings. You know, it's just a it's a very consistent effort to say this man, Donald Trump and his family and their stuff is not stuff that the American people have a right to know about. And this is just another example of that. But, you know, (laughs) the more we're talking about acts that are in some sense official acts and a transition, although it is technically a private entity, it exists pursuant to law. It's funded by the government. It uses government equipment and facilities. It's not really a private entity. So even if you want to make those claims about the Trump organization, the business, even if you want to stretch that to include a campaign for president of the United States, the idea that you can extend that to the transition or to people who are sitting in the White House is crazy. And yet they keep extending this argument farther and farther. So, I think that's a that is a really important point and not one that I've heard many people make. This this notion of they still want to operate as though they're they're a private entity and sort of that you know right, most, that Donald Trump is some private individual. He's not actually sitting in public office with any accountability to the public. Right. It, even the way they sort of they talk about leaks, right? So obviously leaks of classified information, you know, that's that's a separate issue, but just the way they talk about, you know, the fact that their deliberations and what's going on in the White House would appear on the like like sort of they there's the hostility to transparency it, it really is sort of at odds with sort of basic principles of of uh you know civic service that you know there's transparency there's accountability to the public that this is you know the public has an interest in knowing these things so let's step away for from the the kind of the ethics and the legalities of what's happening and look at this as a political action because this is really the first time I think that Trump's lawyers have in a big way, uh, concerted kind of public way, pushed back on Mueller and where he's going. And and what's notable about this is it's coming at a time when the president's lawyers are saying, we've been completely forthcoming. We're more than happy to give Bob Mueller what he wants. We think it's going to be wrapped up. We've talked in the podcast before about why that seems It's going to be wrapped up in a few weeks, and it's outrageous that GSA turned over this material. Right. But this this creates now, it seems to me, a, a new point of traction. And I wonder if it portends what I think a lot of people, particularly those of us who have been covering this, have been wondering is there's going to come a moment where essentially the White House is not going to play nice anymore and is going to start pushing back and saying that Bob Mueller is – the investigation is going off the rails. I mean the texts of the FBI agent have been another sort of bit of ammunition that the Trump team has been using in that. Yeah, so I think that this is a place in which it is really important to sort of keep the teams and the legal teams separate. So the Trump for America legal team is separate from the Ty Cobb White House team. It's separate from the from the president's personal counsel. They have represented that there was no coordination with the White House, right? They are just, they are representing the campaign, the transition mm-hmm. interests. Um, uh, and, and I've actually expressly said, you know, we didn't talk to the White House. This is just sort of what we're doing. I, I do agree that 
that it's it's a political play and, and sort of that there's political consequences that all lead to can he fire Mueller. I do think there's kind of a, a dual track going on here, hmm. right? So like that that inner circle, the the part that's the sort of closest to the president, um, that's it's most advantageous to sort of have that plausible deniability to be able to say, hey, look, we're totally cooperating with this investigation. We've opened the robe. We have nothing to hide here. At the same time, being perfectly comfortable with people a little bit further out sort of starting to make the case. So I don't know that we're going to see a pivot from from sort of that that like very close in team or the or the president's actual lawyers. We might. I, I do think that, you know, they're going to be meeting this week or next week. I think um, uh, we might see it's sort of a turn week, yeah. in that. But I don't think I don't see these things as necessarily at odds. I think mm-hmm. the interesting thing is to what degree is their actual coordination as opposed to just kind of people reading the landscape and 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 strategizing off of that. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a broader set of interests, both inside the administration, around the administration, and beyond that in the sort of um, pro-Trump political universe that, you know, they all have an interest in denigrating the neutrality and authority of the Mueller investigation and painting it as a politicized operation that's out to get the president And so I don't think you need a coordinated conspiracy (laughs) to explain this behavior. Um, And I think it's clear that there are people in the sort of right wing media universe and uh, political operatives and so on who are just reading each other's signals and echoing one another in the way that happens all the time on all kinds of issues. What really struck me over the last week in the wake of this um, (laughs) this non-scandal about the the emails from the transition was how quick people on the left and opponents of the president were to read this as a coordinated conspiracy and to read into it, oh, Trump is getting ready to fire Mueller. And, you know, it's it strikes me that you you really don't need to go there um, to understand this. Number one, the simplest explanation is that they all have an interest in in having the Mueller investigation being seen as political. But number two, you know, why is firing Mueller the the sort of inevitable conclusion of this game? Even if there is some kind of coordinated game or strategy, why is firing Mueller the end game? It seems to me the end game is just a Mueller investigation that whatever it produces is seen on the right as illegitimate and and a creature of the left. And the left, by rushing to the barricades to defend Mueller's integrity, is just playing right into that and making Mueller look like he's an agent of the yeah, left. Yeah. Ben, so, what do you think about that? Because, And we should say the White House has said repeatedly, vociferously, on the record, there is no discussion about firing Mueller to the point where Mark Short, when asked about it, the legislative affairs director on the White House, on Meet the Press on Sunday, was just like exasperated by this idea and essentially said, this is all a thing in your mind as journalists. This is not real. We're but not doing but this. every time a journalist asks them the question and they deny it, people uh, who are opponents of the political opponents of the president get excited about sure. the possibility right. and it reinforces the whole dynamic. And, sure. But so, then Trump makes other comments that undercut it as well. Like, we'll see. I mean, he, he also is playing into this. So this I think the, the, the press actually deserves some uh, blame here uh, and particularly the networks. Uh, the network talk shows on Sunday uh, were 
uh, rife with comments like Washington is awash in rumors that the president is going to fire Mueller on yeah. Friday. And, uh, you know, I heard this, uh, you know, uh, on multiple uh, network TV talk shows uh, over the weekend. Uh, nobody had anything solid. And it was completely irresponsible to be reporting this as though it were something other than vapor. Uh, the White House, um, you know, obviously is engaged in an effort to uh, delegitimize the Mueller investigation, even while they're uh, actively talking about how they're cooperating and he's about to clear them all, or at least the president. Um, but there was never a basis for their firing Mueller on Friday. Um, and the this was an example of lots of press people not wanting to be behind and so getting out in front of something that didn't have a factual basis. And the result was that the mainstream print press the next day on Monday uh, had all of these stories about the comments that people were making about this rumor. Uh, and actually, both the New York Times and the Washington Post had this, you know, stories like, actually, he's not that focused on firing Mueller. He's really got it in for Rod Rosenstein. Yeah. Um, and so it was this- like meta news coverage. It was totally meta news coverage. There was never a basis for it. The, uh, the TV talk shows overtly talked about it as we're reporting rumors now. Let's get everybody's comments. And then the, the, the print press, you know, reported as news the comments on all this stuff. So I think there's actually, it's pretty irresponsible. And there are, were relatively few people. One of them was Jack Goldsmith, who said, I, I don't see a basis for this. Um, and I'm actually skeptical. So let me say this right now. Uh, I actually don't think this is about firing Bob Mueller, and I don't think it has ever been about firing Bob Mueller. I think what this is about is uh, creating a atmosphere in which the future actions of the Mueller investigation are perceived by large swaths of the public as illegitimate or political or inappropriate. And by the way, uh, that were partisan. And by the way, that is exactly what Bill Clinton's people did to Ken Starr. And it is exactly what Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush's people did to Lawrence Walsh. It is a tried and true uh, crisis response by White Houses under criminal investigation to the investigators. It's an old playbook. And it doesn't mean you're going to fire the special prosecutor. So I don't agree that it's sort of – I mean, I agree with your with the premise that, like, this is vapor. But I don't agree with the same sort of, like, this is completely irresponsible or irrational. I think you have to think about – we are in a very similar place in terms of the rhetoric that what occurred prior to the firing of James Comey, which was sort of weird signals out of the White House about being, uh, you know, being unhappy with the situation, speculation, and and not a ton of overwhelming pushback, especially from the Hill. But there, on sort of but Susan, this there was no talk of – the Comey thing came out of nowhere. There was no talk of – 
I don't think it came out of nowhere. There were substantial discussions, you know, sort of post. There were substantial questions um, immediately prior and after the inauguration about whether or not he was going to keep Comey, as though that was like a, a regular decision he was going to make. And, and then there were sort of, uh, I, I think that there there was a, uh, a a live or open question, or at least a su- uh, sufficiently live and open question that we wrote about it on Lawfare, sort of why this would be such a substantial. Well, we we wrote about it the day after the election. Not because there were rumors about it, but because we thought that if you were going to uh, interfere with law enforcement, you'd probably have to get rid of Jim Comey. Sh- sure. It was, that was a characterological assessment of Donald Trump. Sure. So I don't – the point being that uh, uh, the Comey firing, that nobody had sort of set that marker. And whenever sort of early trial balloons went up in whatever form they went up about firing Comey, there was not sort of sufficient guardrails put in place. And so I do think it is reasonable that as you look at sort of Trump's uh, you know, sensibility, personality, the things that he is actually saying, that Trump is personally saying – in the context of this clearly co- some kind of effort, whether it's coordinated or not, to impugn the, the, the legitimacy of the investigation, I do think it's reasonable for there to be an effort for people to really want to get people on record and set the markers now of how unacceptable this would be, why it would be a big deal, sort of to the extent that this is at all a trial balloon, either from the White House or from his surrogates, to shoot it out of the sky. I don't think that's a crazy or irresponsible thing. So she- Shane is motioning us to finish up this segment, but I will just say I totally agree with that. But I think that's a different thing than saying Washington is awash with rumors that Mueller is going to be terminated on Friday. And to say to say that is to tease a news story that you actually don't know if it's true. You have no factual basis for. And if you knew, you wouldn't be talking about it in the language of rumors. You'd be saying something like, Four sources with knowledge of the situation say that Trump plans to fire Mueller on Friday. And that's, you know, when the press doesn't talk in that language, uh, we should ask the question, are, are people reporting stuff or are they just expressing anxiety by talking out of their asses? Speaking of uh, fake news stories, <laughs> yeah, we're going to move on to the story that is seriously the only story I care about this week. Um, so if you missed it, we mock what we don't understand. <laughs> I love this story very deeply. I am, I am not as much out as about Shane. This story. So uh, Helene Cooper at the New York Times and her colleagues ran this really amazing story uh, that a special unit in the Pentagon funded at around $21 million a year, I think it was, in the black budget, thanks largely to the uh, uh, the intervention of uh, one former Senator Harry Reid. This unit was set up to investigate sightings of UFOs, uh, unidentified flying objects. Uh, and the upshot of this, after the guy who ran this unit went public, um, is that uh, – at least in his view, and I think Senator Reid, who was also on the record with the Times, backed this up, um, believes that there is a large amount of credible information, uh, sightings of flying objects of technology that the Defense Department and all of its bright minds cannot explain. Um, That involves technology, uh, in the words of the story, that appears to be beyond next generation, um, there have been apparently metal alloys obtained of whose provenance we cannot determine. Um, 
I don't know what probes discovered. And I want to say you're proving the point. One of the points in the story, which is why this doesn't get discussed more, is because you sound silly or you sound like the X Files. But I just want to underscore: if this were a private organization like SETI. Or a nonprofit. Which makes Ben choke when he hears SETI. <laughs> Just have a cough. The signs of extraterrestrial life and whatever, intelligent life. Um, you know, credible, but like outside groups that didn't have access, presumably, to classified information in the Pentagon to be one thing. This is a secret black budget Pentagon program that ran for years, whose former members are now saying on the record there is a mountain of stuff, of evidence, of technology that we cannot tie to any source. That we know about. That's the Pentagon saying this, which I think takes this story actually out of the realm of, you know, Project Blue Book stories in Area 51. You've now actually had a recently. Hey, don't active... knock Area 51. Yeah, I'm not knocking at all, but it just seems extraordinary to me that this is a reasonable group of people coming forward and saying we've collected information. We have the ability to compare it to, you know, all of our super secret stuff because we're in the Pentagon. And P.S. If the government were building a flying object like the one that is described on the record by this F-18 pilot in the story, um, there's no way you could keep that secret. <laughs> Let's just stipulate that. Um, you know, WTF, you guys, there's evidence of aliens. Okay, so I think we, look, I... I Not evidence of aliens, but... I think it's, um, right, so, so we have to, I think like the part where it gets silly is the jump from unidentified to extraterrestrial. Yeah, right, so yeah, clearly, yeah. so one... So you, uh, you think know, that the Chinese have developed a 40-foot long object so, that can so hover? A I large tic-tac. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think I'm pretty would, sure they have it, but okay. It would certainly be um, uh, grotesquely irresponsible for the Pentagon to not be, um, uh, you know, thoroughly investigating any sort of Precisely, uh, reports. Precisely, yes. and, and it would be a really negative thing if um, sort of the stigma about having seen an alien or being crazy um, caused, you know, members of the military or scientific community of not not sort of to report things that they couldn't explain out of fear of um, uh, of sort of being stigmatized. Um, so, look, I... I I don't actually have any conclusion on the like intelligent life uh, angle, although maybe that's what your helicopters are all about. Well, <laughs> they're the black uh, helicopters circling us. There are two parts of this story that I actually think are really significant and are not related to uh, extraterrestrial. We're not life. talking about those. So the very first, <laughs> I know Shane is like, no, we're talking about aliens. Guys. I, I'm totally up uh, for talking about get aliens. Back so the, to the first point. one <laughs> is the disclosure that comes way, way, way at the second to last paragraph that is talking about these various Defense Department officials that have decided to come forward with this story, in which they say um, they. They are now joined dot 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 in a new commercial venture called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. They are speaking publicly about their efforts as their venture aims to raise money for research into UFOs. So a little bit of context that these people are trying to raise money and that um, uh, I think is, a, is relevant context to the story. The other, frankly, a little bit shocking part of the story um, and one that Harry Reid is actually on the record about is that Harry Reid had $22 million of the black budget dedicated to this project which to a single company run by a friend right <laughs> so like a secret part of it known only to a few other members of a particular committee that was entirely controlled by his friend that is like uh a sort of seems like a public corruption issue so i actually think that is you know whether or not this research is meritorious i i, I don't know why we wouldn't be investigating sort of uh 
any serious national security questions of which unidentified objects should be one. Um, but why exactly this apparently non-compete, no-bid contract was awarded to this one random person, I think raises the Area 51 really is in Nevada. Serious. Well, okay, <laughs> so I, I agree. I, I actually found part – some of what was glorious about this story was the combination of the outside what – we know and the business as usual in Washington the um the local hotel magnate who goes to his senator and says i have a great idea we should be investigating unidentified flying objects and i'm the man to do it i just thought was fantastic um and i but if you want to add a little bit of the conspiratorial note that of the few senators who were aware of this black budget sole source contract <laughs> two are dead <laughs> and, and they coincidence died. i don't think so exactly have the bodies been recovered now but wait wait so- i have another question about this though <laughs> yeah so donald trump represents america an america first agenda but if the entire world is going to have to unite to confront these unidentified flying objects. Um, does that raise the, an Earth-first agenda? Why would we unite with the rest of the Earth? The rest of the Earth can deal with themselves. And, but, America. No, competitive but, engagement, Ben. No, it's in the national no, no, security but if, strategy. But if we have an Earth-first agenda here, does the environmental group called Earth-first have a, do we have a problem with the nomenclature? What happens when... Oh, Ben, you're... Th- now we're, you're arguing over trademark, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. seriously. E.T. We're, we're, is among us. We're talking about unexplained phenomena. Okay. And, and I do have to just say, it's mostly phenomena, Shane, not technology. Like, okay, the alloys, I grant you. But the things that the pilots saw... It was are, a big tic-tac. No, 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 hold on. <laughs> like sailors saw unexplained phenomena in the atmosphere for years before science figured out what they were. So these two pilots saw a flying tic-tac. Okay. It was a, big, it was <laughs> no, a really I'm big gonna push back. I'm going to push back on this one strongly, and okay. I agree with you. That's true. What flavored okay. tic-tac? But those sailors <laughs> did not have the benefit of- Ben is not taking this seriously. Ben is just setting this up. Oh, I'm all about it. Shane is really deadly serious I'm right so now. I'm so serious. I know I'm like the happy-go-lucky <laughs> moderator, but God damn it, I am putting my foot down on this one no, but here's what here's why i push back on this so there is you know telemetry data there is radar data there is visual witnesses there is videotape whatever this thing was it was witnessed by the two pilots i think there was actually two planes it's caught on tape it's being tracked by a ship in the area that is watching it go from eighty thousand feet plummeting to 20,000, shooting back up to 80,000 feet again in a way that no known object or phenomena behaves. Tic-tacs are are really maneuverable. It's 40 feet long, Ben. (laughs) It's not a tic-tac. A weird pile of Canada geese. I mean, we don't know. And how does but, how do you explain the object- speeds at which do geese fly at like four thousand miles an hour? I don't I don't object to it being research. I don't think it's a scandal that the Pentagon would be spending this money or that this program would exist, right? I actually think it would be irresponsible if something like that did occur and people were just like, uh, like I don't want to talk about this. But it's the the jump. It still feels like we're no, making no, a logical. No one's making a jump. Here. No one's saying this is proof of aliens, except maybe me. But <laughs> maybe I just wanted to be. But like, I find it. You know, what I think separates this story, and I'm being completely serious here. 
from stories that have been before is you have a Pentagon agency, very well funded. And I know that the money went to this private sector individual, but who also appears to have a fairly robust investigative kind of group here. We have so much knowledge of aviation systems. We have so much knowledge of, knowledge of weather phenomena. We have so many instruments with which to measure things today. And the experts that are looking at this are coming back and saying, we don't know what this thing is. And in the podcast that Ben mentioned in The Daily, they asked this guy uh, uh, for who ran the office, is there more information that you're not at liberty to discuss? And he said, yes. And Harry Reid on the record said the same thing. I don't think anybody's saying this is proof of aliens, but they are saying there's this compelling mountain of technological evidence that we are technologically gathered evidence that we cannot explain. We don't know what it is. So do That's you think that, a really surprising statement. Do you think that DOD should be more forthcoming? I mean, right? oh, so, yeah. so, okay, there's this program. Now we yeah. know, obviously, it's reported in the New York Times. It does exist. There's a body of information. There's evidence that is credible enough for a DOD inquiry. Like, what do they do? Bring in outside scientists? Make it all public for... Crowdsource it. it. in the public domain? What do you think is, like, the appropriate... Unless there... Look, I, I, I struggled as we were preparing for this. <laughs> I really challenged myself to say, what is the legitimate national security reason you could imagine classifying the findings of this program. And the one, only one that I could really imagine settling on is you've credibly determined that this is actually some hostile force of an unknown origin that is here to try to do harm, and we have no way to defend against it, and we don't want to cause a public panic. But if what, embarrassment is the reason, that's not a good reason. No, no, no. I think is- there's a simpler reason, which is that if there's technology that creates capability for for flight for example for aerial manipulations that we don't have right but say it has a human source you know then that is, that could be a threat to our national security be the swiss the swiss <laughs> but look there, there clearly no, have no, been if we a... didn't build this thing if this is human built it's ours and i just can't imagine you could keep that secret no one that... else has the capability to build something like this i don't, I don't know. think I... that that's necessarily true really? I mean, look I think look the at swiss. the other countries swiss. that are like you know the significant Finns. um have significant space programs i mean I, I do think that actually the reasonable assumption would be if you observe an object that you don't you know that, yeah. that you don't understand where it came from or you you don't understand the technology assuming it is you know, Occam's razor, a, you know, a human source, assuming that it is funded by the government, the that you've brought up some kind of, you know, that it's some sort of surveillance plane, something like that. I could imagine once you have eliminated those possibilities, yeah. then saying, okay, we should say that this is just a scientific phenomenon, not a national security one. But I do think that, like, if you observe these things, the 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 sort of first assumption should be that it's national defense information that it should be protected and probably that we should assume there's a human explanation we have to sadly move on from this but i want to jump on that point you tell me as the as the former national security lawyer <laughs> there are aliens in the basement <laughs> if okay if this actually were let's just say it were some kind of tech i mean i'm not doubting this but like let's say this were a, a u.s designed system if we in which case if there is why are we not living on mars because we can do amazing things but whatever but if that really is some sort of hugely advanced kind of system that was kept even from the people who were in this Pentagon office, why would you fly it around within range of American fighter aircraft and ships where it could be tracked to a fare thee well? Why would you do that? Because lots of people need mint 
uh, you know, you are not part of this discussion anymore. <laughs> cut, cut Go sit mic, in the corner. Vanessa, <laughs> cut him off. No, there are these very I, look, large people that need a, a large re- dictator. I think it's a really good question, Shane, which is why I would assume that if it's flying around near American fighter jets, it's probably not American. It's probably from some other state that didn't know where our fighter jets were. And they're just trying to test their thing out and take the chance that they're not going to get found. I have to say part of what I love about this story is that the guy who used to run this program in the Pentagon on on the contract in hooking up and creating this new corporation called To the Stars, which is such a lovely notion <laughs> because they say they're going to they're going to prove exotic technologies exist that could revolutionize the human experience. But I love that basically he's hooked up with a hotel magnate and a rock star, <laughs> the vocalist for Blink-182, which is a band I really like. <laughs> so um, on that basis, Shane, I'm with you. Let's go find the These are our pioneers, you guys. Earth first, man. But there was one group that I thought could have a serious discussion about this. We're sorry to disappoint you yet again. Yeah, it's all right. I think you're all secretly with me and just don't want to admit it. It's the Chinese, man. I'm telling you. If the Chinese have a 40-foot Tic Tac that can do these things, we are screwed. <laughs> it's the Swiss. <laughs> the Swiss are fine. They're harmless. It's a chocolate machine. All right. Let's move on to an actual serious topic. Uh, this is actually – this goes in the category probably of things that we did not discuss uh, enough and have really not gotten enough attention. But a U.S. citizen uh, – we should say a U.S. citizen with dual Saudi citizenship – uh, has been held for, I think it's 14 weeks now. It's amazing. Uh, as an enemy combatant in Iraq. Um, as you're citing media reports, the administration has withheld the identity of the detainee who is being called John Doe while it figures out what to do with them. And reportedly, Syrian forces captured him in mid September uh, while he was fighting with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And then he was turned over to the military and has sort of been in this legal gray area um, ever since. So, my first question, and Ben, maybe you want to take this, is that. It, I thought we had a fairly well-used, well-worn method for uh, when we detain an enemy combatant in certain circumstances to – you can evaluate them with the, um, the interrogation team for a certain period of time without reading them their rights. But then, you know, you eventually bring them into custody and there's a process for this I, or so I thought. So why is this person, do we think, being held incommunicado for going on four months now? Okay. So – This – the possibility of a case like this has always been there and we've been lucky so far in it not materializing. So in the Hamdi case in 2004, the Supreme Court uh, affirmed that it was lawful to detain a U.S. national under – in military custody uh, under the authorization for the use of military force. But it said that he had to have some kind of legal process. But it didn't say when that process really kicks in. Uh, Since then, uh, both the Bush administration, but particularly the Obama administration, have been – were pretty careful not to uh, try to hold U.S. citizens, at least new U.S. uh, detainees in this status again. Uh, And so we've generally routed people pretty quickly into the criminal justice system. Uh, Sometimes there's a lag where you interrogate people, 
But generally speaking, you capture people and pretty quickly they end up in New York, in the Southern District of New York, uh, in facing criminal indictment. There was always this possibility that, well, what if you arrested somebody or captured somebody who met the standard in Hamdi, that is, who's a uh, a lawful uh, detainee under the laws of war, but you couldn't make an easy criminal case against for one reason or another. What would you do? And uh, we've been quite lucky in that that situation has not really arisen. Uh, and some of us have been warning for a number of years that it would eventually show up and we would have a bit of a crisis when it did. Uh, that is this case. Uh, now, I think uh, some of what the administration is doing here is uh, not wholly unreasonable. For example, it is reserving the right to uh, use the authority that uh, the Supreme Court in Hamdi said it had. Some of what it's doing is quite unreasonable, which is uh, insisting, first of all, withholding the guy's name so that he can't file a habeas right. uh, case. Uh, preventing him from meeting uh, with counsel who could represent him, and then arguing that the ACLU lawyers who are uh, attempting to represent him are not proper uh, representatives for habeas purposes because they don't have a relationship with him, of course, which they only don't have because the government won't let them meet with him and won't let him meet with them. So, uh, you know, the hope was early on that this would be a short-term issue that would, uh, uh, you know, continue only until either uh, he was brought to the United States for trial, as others in that situation have been, or transferred to his home government for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Neither of those has materialized, and it's turned into a kind of protracted incommunicado detention. And uh, that's, uh, you know, quite troubling, um, particularly because the judge who's sitting on the case uh, has not seemed like she's in a particular hurry to uh, uh, get it resolved in a fashion that's protective of, of his rights. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it resolved on any given day, you know, one day we'll find out he's been transferred to Saudi Arabia or he'll show up in New York and the thing will evaporate. But I do think uh, it is pretty disturbing the way it's played out so far. Can I ask, so I think there are sort of two explanations or possible explanations for what's going on. One is that this is some kind of substantive decision, right? They've made the, the choice either to prolong or or to sort of or to push the limits, right? Really sort of push push the limits of uh, of their legal authority, right? There's there's some reason why they're doing this. The other is that we've seen lots and lots of process failures, especially around the kind of sensitive national security decisions that that might have had more legal input early on, right? I mean, it's it's sort of it's a variation on your theme of malevolence versus incompetence. We don't have a DOD general counsel confirmed. You know, we we only recently got ahead of NSD. 
is your gut instinct, and, and obviously this is more speculation, that what we're seeing here is is evidence of some kind of substantive, you know, sort of policy decision within the administration? Or is your gut that just something funky is happening here? And yes, it's a problem that, it, that the timing is so wrong, but like, you, you think the ultimate explanation is just going to be they couldn't decide or get their act together? Well, and can I add on to that question? Because the, I think the, the judge's willingness to give the government so much room here is bizarre or at least demands a bit of explanation. And to me, that would lean in the direction of there being some substantive reason um, that maybe the judge is privy to and the rest of us are not. Okay, so I think that is almost certainly not the case. Um, the judge seems very impatient with the government's position uh, on the um, – as it is articulated and has all but announced that she's going to rule against the government quickly, but then hasn't done so. Um, and so I think it is just that she does not feel the kind of urgency about the matter that some people on the outside, particularly uh, Steve Vladek at the University of Texas, seems to feel about it. Um, in response to Susan's question, I... I, I assume that this is not an ideological thing at all. That is, um, nor is it necessarily a creature of incompetence. This could, could very well be, and I think most likely is, a situation in which um, you uh, don't have a criminal case to make for one reason or another. The guy's been smart enough not to confess uh, to criminal activity. Uh, there's some problem with treating it as a criminal matter. So you're not apt to bring him to New York and charge him with material support for ISIS. Um, transferring people to foreign custody in when you're dealing with uh, regimes that don't respect human rights is always hard. It takes years sometimes to get rid of Guantanamo detainees. And so these cases involve, you know, get very complicated very quickly. And if the Saudis are not saying all the right things and making all the right commitments, the transfer to uh, of a U.S. citizen to foreign custody can be a very, very tricky problem. And I think what they're trying to do, and this is the only part on which I fault them, is they're trying to buy themselves time to get that done by not litigating the habeas case. And the, the keeping the stuff secret is a way of not getting to any merits questions associated with the habeas case, which in turn buys you time to deal with the Saudis to get him home. But is that – I mean this is a dumb question, but is that not a due process violation? I mean – In and of itself, yeah. So the – Questions that they are raising are, on their own terms, legitimate questions that are holes in the traditional uh, fabric that we have for these habeas cases. And I can go into that technically it's if you want. It's a lacuna in the law. It, 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 it's, a, it's a genuine set of open questions huh. that they are exploiting. I think it is wrong for them to be exploiting them in the way that they are. But I can't say that these are legal arguments that are not even available to them to make. And I do 
uh, fault the judge for not – I mean if to the extent that she doesn't agree with them for not ruling promptly. So I, setting aside the legal questions for just a minute and looking at this through the lens of – uh, diplomatic relations. The question of why he hasn't been transferred to Saudi custody, I find puzzling. First, we have transferred others to Saudi custody. So we have managed to get from the Saudis sufficient assurances with respect to humane treatment that we could make these other transfers. So why wouldn't they do it in this case? And a, and, and B, given that the, the bilateral relationship between the Trump administration and the Saudis is so intense, there's constant high-level contact, and we have you know scaled-up intel cooperation, scaled-up military cooperation. We're talking about all this stuff at all these different levels. Why hasn't this been handled? So I, I think you know either there's something about this case that makes it harder for one or the other or both sides like maybe this guy's from a very prominent Saudi family and it would be really embarrassing for the Saudis or maybe you know he he has some tie to the United States that makes it particularly difficult for us to transfer and rely on Saudi assurances or you know maybe as you said Susan it's just a process failure or a degree of incompetence on the part of the Trump administration or Shane's alien thing oh of course that must just be putting it. it out there that's who I, John Doe is I mean <laughs> I, I will say this I don't know the answer to that question and I assume there's something about this case that we don't know um, but you know those can cut both ways back when I was writing editorials for the post uh, shortly after 9-11, there was a, it was also a Saudi case of a U.S. citizen who was arrested in Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, basically held in communicado detention by the Saudis. And he filed a habeas case, a guy named Abu Ali, he was from Virginia, and he filed a habeas case in U.S. court arguing that the FBI was sort of behind the Saudi arrest of him and detention of him. And some of us got very concerned about what he was alleging. And I wrote a number of editorials expressing concern about whether the U.S. government had basically had a U.S. citizen locked up. And then he suddenly showed up in U.S. District Court in, uh, in the United States. And what he was charged with was uh, being an al-Qaeda operative who had planned the assassination of President Bush. And he was eventually convicted and sentenced to life in prison uh, and there was a very, very serious criminal case behind it. So I don't want to be – I don't think that's what's going on here. But I don't want to prejudge the question of what we don't know. I'm very uncomfortable with a protracted detention without his name being released and with the government actively trying to frustrate uh, his habeas review. I think it must be because he's an alien. Mm. It's the One simplest explanation. One can help. Um, let's move on to object lessons. This week, as we said, we're going to talk about Identified stories. object lessons. Identified object <laughs> lessons. Shame. When our alien overlords are here. You are not invited into Shane's bunker. <laughs> and it is very tastefully decorated. They will be looking. They will, that's right. They will be looking for the ones who didn't doubt to be their ambassadors. Um, we're going to talk about uh, briefly just stories we thought that either stories or moments that we thought didn't receive enough attention. Um, I'll go first. Uh, uh, something I, I'm just – it didn't receive no coverage, obviously, because, you know, we covered it. Colleagues of mine covered it at the journal. Um, I was very surprised that the Section 702 debate was not 
a bigger story. What's that? What's that yeah. you say? Again, section who? <laughs> um, so we've talked about it on the podcast, but obviously section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is uh, sunsetting at the end of the year. And as we've explained here before, it's the... it's the Also known as the end of next week. <laughs> the end of next... That, that too. Uh, it is essentially the, the piece in the law that authorizes intelligence collection that forms the bulk of what the president sees every day sort of it's a a major if not the kind of dominant conduit if you will for foreign intelligence gathering in the intelligence community and i'm just surprised that the debate around reauthorizing it the contours of that the civil liberties components of it the government's compelling interest as they see it and keeping the law going this is a this is a big deal. It was a big deal when it was enacted in 2008. It was a major change to how the intelligence agencies operate for civil libertarians. Many of them saw it as a fundamental reshaping of, of, of privacy controls and in many ways an abuse of the government's surveillance authorities. Um, given all of those stakes, uh, you wouldn't really know it by the relative lack of coverage around it. And uh, that just kind of surprised me. No, I, I totally agree. And I do think, I mean, we still have another week and a half. Um, so we'll see if uh, if the White House manages to pull it off. Um, but I do think that if uh, they don't manage to reauthorize before it lapses on the 31st, um, it, this is a creature of legislative dysfunction, but it is mostly a creature of White House dysfunction. And so this will be a real policy scandal and embarrassment for a White House that has gone all in on this rhetoric of national security and radical Islamic jihadism and sort of this silly stuff and um, for them to allow an absolutely critical national security authority to lapse at the same time that they're criticizing the mayor of London for not using the right words would just be a, a, an incredible black eye. Just very briefly, if it does lapse, if a statute lapses, does that mean the surveillance that was authorized stops or is there... So um, April 26th, 24th is um, the day in which the annual authorizations will expire. So <laughs> in all likelihood, and we can talk about it on a later podcast, um, uh, existing collection would be able to continue up until that date, although you couldn't seek new, reauthor- new authorization. So they're sort of think of it as a secondary cliff that's going to come in April. Right. Okay. Um, who wants to go next? I will go next. Um, so mine is also like uh, like your Shane. It's not something that wasn't reported. It was something that didn't get sort of the the penetration, the sort of the cultural awareness that I th- I really thought it was going to. Um, and this is sort of the intersection between the ethics and transparency issues of the Trump administration and national security. Um, you know, we we talked about it early on, sort of Trump's decision not to divest and and Ivanka's decision and Jared's decision. Right, this this weird co-mingling of their personal financial interests, sort of their instinct towards, frankly, some sort of kleptocratic uh, uh, structure of things, um, and really, really important national security decisions. I think it overlaid so much of what occurred this year. Tammy, earlier you were talking about sort of the relationship with the Saudis, uh, you know, the, the nature of the rhetoric with the Chinese. I mean, there's just, there's so much there that I think is, uh, you know, would cause any reasonable American to say, 
are U.S. national security decisions being made exclusively and solely on the basis of what is in the best interest of the United States and the security interests of the United States? Or is it being made because they are, or even in part being made, because it is in the financial interests of the president, his family, or friends? And I just think that uh, that has infected and altered so much of what has occurred over the, the, the past uh, 12 years, or 12 months, it feels like 12 years. Um, and I'm uh, while I think reporters have done a really diligent job of sort of trying to, to track down those stories and and report them out for some reason, that seems to be one area either because it's technical or financial or, or too complicated. Um, just the, the public hasn't really sort of grasped, or, you know, grabbed onto that idea as uh, as being a, a part of the erosion of our institutions, our national security institutions um, uh, that's that's worth really caring about. So my undercovered story, I don't know that it's undercovered, but I do think it's under discussed as a policy matter in Washington, is what's happening to the global war on terror. Um, you know, inevitably and, and understandably, there's been a lot of focus on the fight against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. But now that that fight is winding down, it seems to me that there's not only space, but there's an imperative to debate more broadly where the U.S. military is engaged in counterterror operations all around the world, um, under what authority, to what end, working with whom and how. And there's almost no discussion of this. There was a little bit uh, sparked by the deaths in Niger in October of four uh, U.S. forces who were operating there in a, a in a train and assist uh, mission formally, um, but clearly they were doing more than train and assist uh, in that particular instance. And the circumstances of those deaths are still not fully known and still under investigation by the Pentagon. Um, but to me, that that case kind of created a blip of coverage, and then it slipped again below the surface. There was one hearing this year on. A discussion of a new authorization for the use of military force uh, in the war on terror, one hearing, and it's gone. The conversation is over. Congress moved on. And we're not going to get a new AUMF anytime soon. And it strikes me that we are likely to see in the coming year and the coming years um, more deployment of uh, U.S. Uh, troops, mostly special operators, in uh, small numbers in places all around the world. Um, working sometimes with local governments, sometimes just with the acquiescence of local governments, and sometimes independently um, in operations that are thought of as part of this broader global campaign. And, you know, our, our colleague and now president of Brookings, John Allen, has spoken many, many times about uh, about the the notion that if we don't deal with the underlying vulnerabilities in these countries that enable these terrorist movements to take root and flourish and operate, we're going to be playing whack-a-mole on a global scale for years. And I fear that without more public discussion, that's where we're ending up. Alien technology. Oh, Ben. <laughs> You will not get off so now easy. Now you're on Shane's naughty list. <laughs> He's going to get a lump of really what you're bringing to the table? I mean, Benjamin. you're the one who's been saying it's an important story. And I'm saying, look, if if it is an important story, it's been undercovered the whole year until last week. Until it was reported last week. Yeah. <laughs> not reported at all. That doesn't count. <laughs> 
Well, it's all you're going to get. We know. We know now. If Shane could construct his own beat, what it would be the oh. UFO beat. Amazing. I'm going to find a way to do this, you guys. <laughs> hey, look. If if the New York Times Pentagon correspondent can do it, I can do it. There you go. It's going to be a way. I believe in you. Helene Shane. Cooper has legitimized this. <laughs> God bless you, Helene. <laughs> Oh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Mercifully, for some, Rational Security is <laughs> a production of, of Lawfare. You can find the show page on the internet. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've just given up In on that. Somewhere out there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Please remember when you download the podcast, leave us a nice review and a rating. It's the holiday season. It'll be a nice present for us and all of your fellow podcast listeners out there to help them find it. We'll text Santa and tell him you left a nice review. Indeed. Uh, our it's audio. Just about threats. <laughs> yeah, it's just If you don't leave a nice review, just we're texting nice Santa. <laughs> Heading on my phone. <laughs> Our audio engineer this week is Vanessa Sauter. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Chris Kringle and the Flying Tic Tacs. Uh, right. We're just the Flying Tic Tacs. The Flying Tic Tacs? Yeah. I was trying to give it a holiday theme. What? There's always a lead singer and a backup. You know how this goes. Right. It can't just be the Flying Tic Tacs. <laughs> Much as you would like to just make it all about Flying Colleen Cooper and the Flying Tic-Tacs. Ooh, there you go. That would be a great band. Oh, I could see that in a second. On behalf of my sometimes friend, Ben Wittes, <laughs> Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Happy holidays, everyone, and we will see you next year. Bye-bye.